It's already rolling? It's rolling. Okay, okay. We have been talking all weekend about the first steps. We've been talking about step one, which is admission. We admitted we were powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. Submission, which is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We hear this step over and over again, step two. And we hear this and we, a lot of us try to force ourselves into believing in a God that we really are not willing to believe in. So we sometimes have to sit back and formulate a higher power that we are willing to believe in. And one of the things that I see so often in OA, both in myself and the people that I've sponsored over the years is that we are trying to believe in a God that we really do not believe in. And so this is very important. And that's why we study the story of Bill Wilson. We study the story of Bill because he struggles with God. He struggles with this idea of a power greater than himself. He didn't want something forced upon him. And when Ebby says to him, why don't you choose your own conception of God? He says to himself, this is something I can do. This is something I can deal with. And you know what, really? I'm, I'm 61 years old. I've never had any trouble dealing with my conception of pretty much anything. Let me believe the way I want. Let me do it on my terms. And I'm okay with it. And that's what is afforded us in this program in step two. <laughs> step two is so important that when I see people struggling in step four, and I see people struggling with step nine, and I see people struggling in their program, 99% of the time, we're going to go back to step two. And if I'm sponsoring you, we're going to go back to step two, and we're going to redefine that higher power. That's how important it is. And we talked about the fact that the steps are clearly in four sections. Step one is admission. Steps two through seven is submission. Steps eight and nine are restitution. And 10, 11, and 12 is construction. And that's what we're going to do. And there's going to be three results of what we're going to do here. Three very, very important results besides the fact that you'll be abstinent and you'll be happy about it. You're going to get right with God. You're going to get right with yourself, and ultimately, you'll get right with your fellow human being. What a great gift. And I see people all the time crying, tears, really crying. Why me? Why me? Why my son? Why my daughter? Why my mother? Why my father? Why not you? Why not you? And the hell that you went through to get here and the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you've spent for food that you didn't even want, and therapists and psychiatrists and gyms and all the various pay-and-way places got you here. This is one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. The membership here is at least $100,000. I bet that if I went back in your lives and I looked at the bill for the food you didn't want to eat and the food that you knew was killing you, and the food that you knew was very poor quality food, and you ate it anyway against your will. You were being dragged by the hair into the food. If I 
took all the receipts from Weight Watchers and all the receipts from Nutrisystems, and some of you have had lap band, and some of you have had uh, stomach stapling, and some of you have had all various manners of these medical procedures. I've been hospitalized quite a number of times because of my obese condition, from dysentery to all kinds of staph infections and cellulitis and things like that. I remember being in Skokie Valley Hospital for 15 days. I came in that hospital, I was 513 pounds, and the backs of my legs were oozing pus, and I had diamond nickel uh, penny and dime size ulcers in the back of my legs and if you give me 25 cents I'll show you where it's all discolored and everything but it's 25 cents to look but the bottom line is is that um, these are the things that got us here and there is a loving God there is a wonderful way of life here and if you talk to the people or you are one of the people that have had this emancipation from the excess food. It is the most glorious, most wonderful way of life in the world. We've been talking up till uh, yesterday. I wanted to cover 8 and 9 yesterday and do 10, 11, and 12 this morning. I just couldn't. I had that little thing that just threw me emotionally yesterday, uh, that question that had come in, and, and, so, uh, and I was just so tired. But we're going to talk about 8 and 9, and we're going to talk about them this morning. And we're going to um, just review for just a second here something I want to make very, very clear. And I know that this has nothing to do specifically with 8 and 9, but I want to go over it. Otherwise, I'm going to beat myself up on the airplane because it's a very short flight, so I won't, have, I won't do too much damage to my little head here. It's, a very, it's my kind of flight, San Diego to Phoenix. You're up, you're down, and goodbye and good luck. It's a one-hour flight. It says in, on my cell phone, it sells, says one hour and five minutes. That's not really true. You're only in the air 40 minutes. The one hour and five is for the runways and the you know, taxiing and stuff. It's a, you're up in the air 40 minutes in your home. I don't know why people drive it, but okay, it's up to them. Um, I want to I reiterate something that's so important that I, if, if, if you don't hear anything else this weekend, this is what I want you to hear. Food to the compulsive overeater is never the problem. We have gone our whole lives thinking and believing what people told us, that if you just eat less, you'll feel better. And essentially, they were right that when I eat less, I do feel better. I feel anger better. Oh, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel jealousy better, crushes on girls better. I feel like killing myself better. I feel all these various things much, much more acutely when I'm not eating. And what happens is, is that when I'm not eating, all of a sudden these emotions begin to build up in me and when these emotions build up in me, my brain is wired to seek out what it knows will make me feel better right now. It wants instant results and it's not willing to wait in line. And so there is a part of my brain that reacts abnormally to food because food does something for me that it does not do for the non-compulsive overeater. When I eat certain foods or volume, when I eat Doritos and ice cream and Kit Kat bars and Raisinets, when I eat these things, 
there is something called the effect that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion. What is the effect? It is that sense of ease and comfort that comes over me instantly when I eat these foods. I immediately feel better. Now, the unfortunate thing for me, and I think we're having a jailbreak back there. Somebody's trying to get in and can't. Thank you so much. Yeah, they're trying to break in or something. Okay, now, what we have is um, we have a situation on our hands where that makes me feel better instantly. And what we have is an alternative. And the alternative to feeling better instantly through the use of food is the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. So what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where I don't want the food? And that process of bringing God, a higher power, into my life so as to lower the level of those emotions where they do not build up to the level where they become fatal is called recovery. Recovery. And it is to return that which has been lost. I was lost to my creator because I was operating on self-will. And as a child, I was full of fear and dread and anger and rage and a tempestuous nature. When I was a kid, I had a tempestuous nature where things, little things would just weigh on me. Little tiny things would just weigh on me. And I would eat because I couldn't bear the pain of these thoughts. I couldn't bear the pain. Bob, we've got a seat for you right up here, buddy. You're in the luge section, pal. We don't, we don't have any type of situation where you have to not sit up front here, baby. Okay, now, so the, the situation as such is if I work the steps, I will not want the food. And in order for me to work the steps, I have to be out of ideas. I have to be out of ideas. Okay, we're going to talk now about steps eight and nine. And when you go to a meeting, most of the time, this is going to be tricky here with this thing here because the table is encroaching on my seat here. But anyway, but I bear no resentment. Okay, I bear no resentment here. Uh, Oh, Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. I was just saying that some inconsiderate person here put these tables here because I have to have a place to sit my tuchas here. Okay, we're going to talk about step eight here for just a minute. And normally when you go to a step study meeting and you're going to talk about amends, normally the conversation will immediately avert eight. Eight is one of the most ignored steps. Eight and six are like speed bumps to most people. You just kind of read them and go through them. But let me just assure you that step eight is a very definite step. And step eight is the willingness to make amends. The willingness is very, very important because I've made my list in eight. Excuse me. I've made my list in four of my resentments, my fears, and my sexual harms done others. And now I'm about to go about into into my life, and I'm going to make amends to the people that I've harmed. And step eight says, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
That's why you don't burn your fourth step, guys. Now, this willingness to make amends is very, very important for me. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself here. I hated my mother. My mother was mentally ill. She was the bane of my existence. I waited for her to get the right slap in the face so that she'd wake up and not be mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a three-year-old. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic or the most together, politically astute, well-read, articulate person you ever met. You never knew what you were going to get and you never knew when and you never knew how long it was going to last. My mother was a source of embarrassment to me. My mother was a source of pain to me. My mother was a source of shame to me. And I wished her ill. And I let her know. And I took anything and everything out on her that I possibly could. The greatest joy in my life was her pain. And the greatest pain of my life was her joy. I did things to myself I did things that I knew would hurt her, and it gave me a euphoria that I cannot describe for you. And that is a sick way to live, but I didn't know how to cope any better. Somebody's got to turn the volume up on this thing. I didn't know how to cope any better. I felt very cheated by my life. <laughs> I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, and I got something very, very different. I wanted Rob and Laura, and I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. I got a father who came to this country with bullets in the back of his arm. I got a father who barely spoke English. I got a father who was 54 years old. But I did get a father that gave me everything and anything he could give me in terms of love. He loved me and I was the light of his life. And I never had to wonder whether or not they loved me. They did. My father had the kind of nature that if he had $10 to his name, he'd give you 20 If he had 20 he'd give you 1000 he would give you anything. My father would give you the skin off of his back. That's the man he was. And when you spoke Yiddish, not English, he was definitely the life of the party. He was articulate and he was very funny and he was very, very engaging in conversation. English was not his language. And so it's very easy for me to tell when people are not thinking in English because I've lived with it my whole life. I know when when people are not thinking in English, I can hear the translator going off in the back of their head. I just know it. It's just instinctual to me. My father had a lot of nightmares in his life, and he had a nightmarish existence. There's no doubt in my mind that he is in heaven because he lived hell on earth. He lived hell on earth. He was scared to death, and he knew they were going to come and kill him any day. He knew that his jig was up, and they were going to come and kill him, and there was no way I could have saved him. I wanted to protect him. I wanted to save him, and I couldn't do it. But my mother was the bane of my existence, and I blamed her for everything. I remember very distinctly being 10 years old, and um, they were at, at Peterson and Kedzie. There's a McDonald's. It's still there. And they were having a big special. They were going to stay open year-round. See, I remember when McDonald's used to close in the wintertime. That's how old I am. I remember when they would close in the wintertime. See? And they were offering license plates for the back of your bicycle with your name on it. So me and Alan Edinger and David Iglo and Bobby Parr and David Foley, 
David Ives and some of the other guys from the neighborhood, we ski-daddled down on our bicycles on a Friday afternoon in August of 1964 to go get our McDonald's license plates. And they all got theirs, but I didn't get mine because they didn't have Harlan. And the guy says, I've got Howard, and I that's not my name. <laughs> when I, I lived in Oregon for nine years, and... Um, my salespeople in Oregon, who I affectionately referred to as my kids, when I left Oregon, they got me a customized little license plate <laughs> before I left. And they said, oh, you can finally get one now. But then I thought this was the worst thing that could happen to a person. Not having a McDonald's license plate was equal to somebody getting terminal cancer or getting hit by a bus or something in my mind. And I remember being just beside myself with anger and I went home and my mother was in Bethesda Hospital. Bethesda Hospital is not there anymore but it's, that's where she was at the time. It's on Howard and Western. It was on Howard and Western and now it's condominiums. But um, anyway she was in Bethesda Hospital and in 1964 pneumonia was not like it is today. Now if you have pneumonia they give you a shot in your tuchus and you go home. You're good. You know, you're fine. In those days, she was in an oxygen tent, and it was a whole deal. It was a whole thing. With, when you had pneumonia, you were, you were gitapsaurus, which in Yiddish means you were really in trouble. So she called because she wanted me and my dad to bring her some stuff, and I ripped into her. I hate your guts. I hope you die. I hate my name. Why did you give me that effing name? I hate you. I hope you die in that hospital. So... <clears throat> I ripped into her like you wouldn't rip into your worst enemy. I told her things you wouldn't tell Hitler. So this was in the days way before cell phones, but she knew how to... My dad had a sausage route, and he would deliver to little delis and restaurants and things. She found him, and he, here he comes up the back steps, and now we're going to have a whole problem here because when she made problems for him, he would make problems for me. Not that he didn't say worse things to her in his life, trust me, but okay, now we're going to fight it out. All right, fine. I did everything I could to harm her. Now, she died in 1976, way before I got in program. I didn't come in until 79. How do you make amends for that? I started doing my steps. And from 1979 until about 1994, I came to peace with the fact that I didn't choose her and that we were all doing the best we could. And then something happened in 1994 on December the 14th at 4.27 p.m. in Eugene, Oregon at Sacred Heart Hospital. My daughter was born. And my daughter was born into the world under very trying circumstances. My, my then wife had um, horrible pregnancy. My wife almost died during pregnancy. She was vomiting from the moment we got pregnant until the moment she delivered. She lost 27 pounds in pregnancy. My wife was deathly ill. And she had to be given a lot of drugs, a lot of medication so that she'd be okay. And they didn't know how it was going to affect the baby and they encouraged my wife to get an abortion, and my wife wouldn't do it. And on December the 14th, 19, 
1994, my daughter was born at Sacred Heart Hospital. She was orange. She was much the color of, well, maybe your sweater there. A little darker. She was, looked like a little pumpkin. She looked like a little pumpkin. And from the moment she was born, she has struggled medically. And I was told, along with my then wife, that she might have CP, developmentally delayed, blind and deaf. These were severe possibilities, so prepared for them. We're 3,000 miles from home. I'm making money hand over fist, but that doesn't buy you a healthy baby. We took her and dried her off, and the nurse's name was Janice. Probably still is Janice. And they dried her off, and she was orange. And I said, she looks like a pumpkin. And she says, baby has jaundice. And so they marked down jaundice. And then she turned to me, and I was on her right, and she turned to me and says, it does not appear that baby is deaf or blind. So I was relieved, and they said, because I had just cut the umbilical cord, they said, do you want to walk her into the NICU? Do you want to walk her into the neonatal intensive care unit? I says, yes, I'd like to do that. And I walked her in there, and she was put into an isolate. And when they give medication to an infant, they don't give it through the arm like they would an adult. It's through the feet and the head. And so they put needles in her head and in her feet, and she's just struggling and struggling, and bam! It hit me like a brick. I got it. I got what God was trying to tell me. And I became at peace with my mother. I got it. This is what it's like to love someone like she loved me. And if she could have done better, she would have done better. If she could have unmentally illed herself, she would have unmentally illed herself. And for the very first time in my life, I stopped thinking about what I lost out on by her mental illness. And I started thinking about what she lost out on by her mental illness and what we lost out on by getting an incomplete, broken person. And I also understood what it must have been like for her to have a son who hated her that much. And the pain that she must have endured by having an ungrateful bastard son who was so cruel to her. And it changed me. And I'm at peace with her today. And I know that she's up there and she loves me. I know that she's proud of me for traveling the country. I'm going to Reno, Nevada. I'm going to Dallas. I'm going to San Francisco. I'm going to Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm going to San Diego today, and I'm going to, I'll be back in San Diego probably in December if Dave wants me to come back here. Where else am I going? I forgot. Uh, I don't think there's, it doesn't matter. But wherever I'm going, I take her with me. And when I do the best that I can in my life, and when I do the best that I can to serve this wonderful organization that has given me my life, I know that she's up there and that she's happy because this is all she would have wanted is for me to live my life to the fullest. How do you make amends for that once she's dead? I live according to what I know in my heart she would want me to do. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, 
we were playing baseball with a rubber ball. Not a real league, thank God, but a rubber ball. And I was pitching, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if instead of I throwing the ball at the batter, I hit one of the kids watching the game? So I did. And everybody did laugh, except little Wendell McMillan, who was four years old. He didn't laugh. And I wish I could make amends to him, but I can't find him. I wish I could make amends to the people that I heard along the way, but some of them are dead, and I wish I could make amends to my father. I didn't want to be ashamed of him. I wanted to be proud of him. I just couldn't muster the feeling. I wanted what I wanted, and I perceived that his poverty and his language skills and his lack of Americanization was stopping me. And I resented him for not leaving me money and leaving me a business and leaving me a trust fund and leaving me uh, Jennifer Aniston. I resented him. <laughs> I resented the, 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 the daylights out of him because he couldn't make my life the paradise that I had envisioned, this effortless paradise that I wanted from the world and I never could get. I have to work for the things I want. I wish I could make amends to him for that. But when I travel the country and I do the things that I do, and I walk my dog in the morning, and I'm in the desert. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And if you come to Scottsdale, Arizona, it is beautiful. Not now. Don't come there now. You'll die of the heat. But if you come October, November through May, it's paradise, man. You can see every star in the sky. You can, you can just touch the moon, and I'm throwing the ball, and the dog is running, and I'm working my business, and I'm doing what I need to do and I'm sponsoring early in the morning and doing what I need to do I know he's with me I know they're with me and so that's how I make my amends to the people that I cannot make my amends to now some of you have had parents or relatives or friends or people in your life that cannot be reached they're dead or they're unreachable. You can't find them. They're not on Facebook or they're not on whatever. They're not on Google and they're not, they don't have a, an in internet footprint. There are still people that don't have an internet footprint. And so we have a situation where we can only be willing to make amends to those people should the opportunity present itself to us. And that's the only way we can do it. We have to remain, we have to become and remain willing. The top of page 77 tells me everything I could ever need to know about why I was born. At the top of page 77, it says very clearly, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. There is no more clear-cut sentence in the book as to why I'm here. Why did I survive? How did I survive? Why didn't I have a massive coronary at 400 pounds, 500 pounds, 600 pounds, 700 pounds? Why didn't I just drop dead? Because I'm here to be of service, maximum service to God and the people about me. That's an Oxford group term, maximum service. Are you being maximum? And they told Bill Wilson, bring in stockbrokers, bring in the Wall Street guys. Stop fooling with the drunks. And he'd say, no, no, I'm here to save drunks. And they'd say, no, no, no. The Wall Street guys have something that the drunks don't have called money. 
bring in those guys. We want those guys. And he'd say, no, no, no. And that's why he put that in there in those terms. Maximum service. Now, if the big book wants to tell me something, it doesn't just tell it to me once. It doesn't just tell it to me once. It tells it to me many, many times. And Dr. Silkworth calls this an altruistic movement. In other parts of the book, in chapter 1, Bill says, when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic will save the day. In another part of the book, it says, helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. In another part of the book, it says, a healthy respect for other people's opinions and attitudes makes us more useful to the people about us. Are you getting where we're going with this? We have to be of service to other people. This is not something that we do so that we can just keep it in a bottle on the mantle at home. We are here to serve. If you look at anybody who has long-term abstinence, you will see them being of service. My sponsor is known to many of you. His name is John. You come to the OA birthday in January, January 15th, 16th, and 17th. And the first guy I'm going to see when I walk into that hotel is Bob. Every time I walk into the birthday, he's asleep on the couch out there in the lobby. <laughs> he's just kind of schnoozing off. And I'll come in there with, my, with this suitcase, and the first person I'm going to see is Bob. He always beats me there, and he's always sitting in the lobby. It makes me feel like I'm home. I'm home. I'm glad you're here this morning, too. We love you, buddy. And uh, if you come to the birthday, you'll see him doing a lot of service. And he travels this country, and he does big book retreats, and he does uh, relapse workshops, and he does lots and lots and lots of service. Anytime I've been sponsored by anyone in this program, one of the things that attracted me to those people is service. Service is so important. So important. Let's go to step nine. Step nine is a step that is very, very key. If you remember, we talked about Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal minister, and Sam Shoemaker was the head of the Cavalry Mission in New York City. And the Cavalry Mission in New York City was where Roland... Ebby, Zebra Graves Jr., Bill Wilson, all went to meetings. We are amidst royalty now as Dave enters the room now. I just want you to know that. And the cavalry mission was headed by a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker repeated many times, and 16 years before the big book was written, this is in 1921. He wrote a book. And when the book he wrote, he said that there were four impediments to God. Impediment is something that slows or stops your progress. Impediment. And he believed that there were four impediments to God. The first one being a resentment that you will not let go of. The second one being a vicarious thrill that you will not let go of. The 
third one being a restitution that you will not make. And the fourth one being a secret that you will not tell. A restitution that you will not make. We do not have the time to go through step nine verbatim in the book because of we ran over yesterday and then that whole thing. But we have restitution that has to occur usually in money. Most alcoholics owe money. There's the understatement of the year. Many of us do too. And people have come to me through the years and they'd say, well, I'm, I'm in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. I can't afford to pay that back. If you were smart enough to steal it, you're probably smart enough to pay it back. If you can't pay it back all in one check, you start small. You go to the person with a forgiving spirit, a calm manner, a calm spirit, and you go to this person and you confess your former problems, you confess your former mistakes, and you begin to pay them. You start to pay them little by little, by little by little, and one day you will look around and you're square with the house. Now, many of us have shirked our responsibility. Many of us have not done the things we were supposed to do. We go back and we clean it up. Now, this is very important. Some of us have restitutions to make that have little or nothing to do with money. Some of us have kissed somebody else's girlfriend. Some of us have kissed somebody else's boyfriend or husband. Some of us have done things to other people that do not have anything to do with money. How do we make amends for that? Well, you don't have the right to save your skin at somebody else's expense. If I'm kissing Bob's wife and uh, I'm uh, kissing her, I do not have the right to go up to Bob and say, Bob, I've been kissing your wife for 15 years, and I'm sorry. We do not, we do not have the right to do that. How do I make amends to Bob for kissing his wife? I stop kissing his wife. Stop the behavior. If you're continuing the behavior, it's not an amends. You're still doing it. We covered that at the end of step four. We covered that at the end of step four because it's very important and we're going to cover it again in nine. Now, let's just say, for example, you are mixed up in a harm that you've done others, but there was another person complicit with you. You do not have the right to save your skin at another person's expense. You secure their permission before you go out and you make the amends. You secure their permission. If they don't give it, you don't make the amends, but you remain willing to if the situation should arise. God will make things possible for you in these areas that you will not believe. Now, I'm going to issue a warning Do not go out and start making these amends without a sponsor. For God's sakes, you can go out there and create more harm, more havoc, more craziness than you ever had in the first place. You may create more of a situation than was there in the first place if you are unguided and not in recovery. 
Make sure your sponsor is grounded in recovery and that your sponsor has a sponsor and their sponsor has a sponsor. Make sure you are on solid ground before you go out and start making these amends. My God, I can't tell you the havoc I have witnessed in my life by people going out and running amok that they're going to make amends and they haven't even put the damn food down yet. It's the ninth step because it's the ninth step. If you're still eating cake, please do not go out and do this. You are going to create more problems than you know what to do with. I'm, that's, from me to you, that's, that's important to remember. Now, we're going to go through steps 10 and 11 and 12 in a little more detail. But it's no accident, it's no secret, and it's no mistake that the so-called promises come between steps 9 and 10. By the time you go through your ninth step, and I want to talk about a ninth step amends that I had to make for just a minute here, you're going to feel things inside you that you never felt before. In the early 1980s, I had what's called a hot tooth. A hot tooth is where the nerve is dying and the, the tooth hurts and then it doesn't hurt. And then it hurts and it doesn't hurt. It's, it's weird. It hurts so much you actually wake up from sleep because it hurts so damn much. And I finally got hooked up with a guy that was going to do the root canal on that. And he was right across from Mather High School, right at Lincoln and Peterson, across the street from Liberty Federal Savings. And so you get a little Chicago geography here, too, especially if it's north side. If it's south side, I'm lost, except for Sox Park. I'm totally lost. Okay, anyway, <clears throat> I digress. So I went to this guy, and uh, you know how when you go to the dentist or you go to this guy's an endodontist, I think, is the guy that does the root canal. Is that right, endodontist? Okay, I see some head shaking. Some of you are awake, some are not. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. So I go to this guy, and... Um, you know, how you wait in the waiting room and then you wait in the office. So when you're waiting in the office, they come and they shoot you with the Novocaine and they put it in your cheek and they put it in over here and your gum and you're this and that. So I'm numb and in comes the dentist or in comes the endodontist. Let's, for the sake of this little thing, call him Dr. P. And he comes in and doesn't say, good morning, Mr. Grabowski, or how are you? He says, my God, how much do you weigh? He's, this is the very first thing out of his mouth is, how much do you weigh? And he goes, I, you're going to break my chair. He says, I just had this chair fixed for $2,500, and you're going to break my chair. He says, the load limit on this chair is 500 pounds. You're over 500. How much do you weigh? Why do you eat so much? What's wrong with you? No wonder you're having trouble with your teeth. And this was the nice part. Now, sure enough, as fate would have it, as if I hadn't been through enough, his chair broke with me in it. Now he's really hot. He's hollering at me. I'm shut down emotionally because that's the only thing. I can't run away and get away from him. And I'm numb physically, and I'm in the chair. Where am I going to go? 
he fixes my tooth and he's screaming at his daughter. Don't you ever take an appointment from that? You mark it down in the book. You don't ever take an appointment from this man. This man is not allowed. You get out of here. You broke my chair. You've got to lose weight. You've got to go home and lose weight. You are, an, you are morbidly obese, he yelled in my face. He goes, you look like a damn boat walking down my hallway here. You're, you're morbidly obese, he says to me. Now, I had dental insurance, and my copay was $62. You know what this guy can do for $62, right? I don't want to be impolite here, but he can scratch something for $62. He ain't getting a penny from me. A couple years go by, I'm back in recovery. Now I'm working the steps, and I've got a resentment against this guy. I've got a flaming, red-hot, comet-on-fire resentment against this dude. And it comes time to do the ninth step. My sponsor says, what about Dr. P? Nope. What about Dr. P? Nope. What about Dr. P? Nope. And this is going on for a couple of weeks. I'm making other amends. I mean, I'm not just sitting there eating Cracker Jacks or Oreos. So I ran out of room. I got to go make amends to this guy. Gulp. I went to Liberty Federal. I had an account there. I got a 50, a 10, and two ones, 62 bucks. Interest I'm not paying. (laughs) There's only so far I'm going. That's it. You get the principal, interest is on you. Sorry. Into every life, a little rain must fall. So I walk across the street and I see his daughter. And um, I don't see his name on the door anymore. But I see her. I go in there. She says, "Um, who are you? She says, wow, you really lost a lot of weight. I I must have dropped 300, 200 pounds by that point. And she says to me, yes, I remember you. Oh, I don't want your $62, sir. I really don't want it. He says, I remember. My father was obnoxious to you. He says, oh, that chair, you know, he, when he said he really, he, had, he just had it fixed, that was years ago. And those chairs, they, they needed servicing anyway. And don't worry about it. And it's, it's really okay. And I says, look, my sponsor is 6'6". Six, six. You've really got to take this money. You've really got to take this money. Whatever you want to do with it, give it to the gorillas. I don't care. Give it to the chipmunks. Give it to nuke the whales. Whatever you want, just do. Just take the $62 and, you know, whatever you want to do with it is fine with me. But you've got to take the $62. So she took the $62. It was a Thursday. Swedish Covenant speaker meeting that night. I went across the street to the public phone. Yes, we had public phones in those days. And dropped in a dime to make a call. A dime to make a call. My feet didn't touch the ground. I was so euphoric. My tires didn't touch the ground. I was so, so happy. You can't buy that. You can't buy it. And the last thing on my mind was food. The last thing on my mind was compulsive overeating. The last thing on my mind was feeling sorry for myself. The last thing on my mind was me. I felt 
a sense of hope, a sense of godliness. I felt a sense of purpose. I felt a sense of being alive that doesn't come from just walking down the street. I had faced it. I had faced it. I had done the amends, even though in my mind I knew that this man had treated me like dirt. I owned my part, and I paid him the money, and I faced it. And I wish that for you. I hope you'll get to feel what I felt that day. Now, the feeling doesn't last unless you keep working at it. The feeling doesn't just last because you want it to. And certainly, no matter how evolved my recovery ever got, I never did rise above the level of a human being. And bills came in, and challenges came in, and crushes on girls came in, and flat tires came in, and broken shoelaces came in, and snow that had to be shoveled came in. So all the various things that a human being encounters were to be mine, and so that feeling was soon lost. Unless I work at it, it's not going to go away. If I, I mean, if I work at it, it's not going to go away. So every day I try to be of service and every day I try to do these things which will bring me closer to God and further away from a Kit Kat bar. And the more I can do to get away from a Kit Kat bar and closer to God, the better my life goes. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. This is a program of action, one after the other after the other. Do not wait to reach the point of orgasmic recovery where you are catapulted into some Recovery heaven forever. It doesn't happen during our life. You must keep at it. You must pursue it as if your hair was on fire because your hair is on fire. This illness is mind over matter. It doesn't mind killing you and you don't matter. This illness will wreak hell on you like you wouldn't wreak on your worst enemy. It will strip from you every piece of dignity imaginable. It will plunge you into a depth of hell you didn't even know existed. And if it hasn't done that yet, you have yets in front of you. <laughs> this illness is unmerciful. The only power greater than this is the power of the recovery, the power of God. Let's take a look at the bottom of page 83. The bottom of page 83. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, 
We will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always, the key word is always, materialize if we work for them. Not if you sit there hoping for them. Not if you sit there praying for them. Because this is not a program for people who need it. And this is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. Now, I love coming here to San Diego. San Diego and Los Angeles are like, sort of like my second homes. I come here quite a bit. I'll actually be back in December if Dave B., who was here, I don't know, he's not here now. If Dave wants me to come and do my pre-Christmas workshop, I'll be very happy to come. I do that every year here in San Diego, and I'm happy to do it. And some of you I see have attended them before, too. Some of the faces I see. I can't imagine after attending that why you're here now, but okay. <laughs> okay. But the bottom line is, is that uh, I love these groups. And um, this is an honor. But I'd say this no matter where I go. If you're coming here, and you go back to your groups, and you keep doing the same things that you've been doing, if you don't change anything, if you're struggling and you don't pick up service and you don't pick up a big book and you don't make some changes in your program, you've spit on me for coming here. Because I didn't come here to give you dieting tips. And I didn't come here to teach you how to be free of Kit Kat bars. I'm coming here to encourage you with everything in me that if, you're, if your program is not headed in the direction you think it should go, make some changes. Don't be afraid. Make the changes. Now, there's two and ten that are the most underutilized steps in the, in the book. Two and ten. Ten is misunderstood by many to be thought of as something you do in the morning or at night. That's eleven. That's not ten. That's eleven. Ten is something that we do all during the day. And ten is something that will be your first line of defense at lowering the level of those toxic emotions which will eventually drive you into the food through the pain that they will create in you. That pain is so intense that you will not be able to bear it. And the mental twist will drag you by the hair into the food. And so tenth step is very misunderstood and underutilized. The first thing that's misunderstood about it is that you do it even when you start 8 and 9. And let's look at the words of 10 so that we can understand clearly the precise instructions for 10. Okay, Let's take a look at the wording so that we know how to do it. It says here, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right <clears throat> excuse me, any new mistakes as we go along. 
we vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. What steps do we use to clean up the past? Eight and nine, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all those various steps. So that means you don't wait till you're done with nine to do ten. What's going to happen to you as you're doing eight and nine? What's going to start building up immediately? Emotions, aren't they? And what's going to happen when emotions build up? They're going to trick the, trigger the mental twist. <clears throat> the mental twist is going to send you into the food. The food is going to trigger the allergy. The allergy is going to make it so that you cannot stop. So this step, this 10, is begun immediately upon the amends section, the amends part. Now, how long should it take you to get from the end of 4 to the beginning of 10 because you're going to begin 10 at 8? About 10 minutes, about an hour and 10 minutes. You get an hour at the bottom of page 75 to be by yourself. Big Book gives you an hour. It should take you about a minute and 15 seconds to do steps 6 and 7. And then you could begin 8. As soon as you begin 8, you start doing 10. Because as you contemplate and make these amends, fear is going to build up, anger is going to build up, and all these things are going to start coming back to you. Okay? So that should clear up the timing on it. Okay? Rowan? Oh, we have entered the world of the Spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Now, when people call me up and say, I'm back in the food, I had some good abstinence years ago, I can't put the food down, invariably they didn't continue this throughout their lifetime. I had a woman, she wouldn't mind me telling you, her name is Naomi. She's a dear soul. She lives in New Jersey. She came up to me. I was in uh, Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And she's listening to this. I love you, baby. But if she, but, um, she came up to me and she said, can I call you when I'm done with my steps? And I looked, her at, looked right at her and I was tired as anything. It was the end of my day. And I says, nope. And she said, why not? And I said, because you'll be dead. When you're done working your steps, you'll be in the box and there's no phones in there. There's no phones in there. It, there's no place to plug the thing in to get charged. So she looked at me like I was cuckoo. And then I explained it to her. And she said, oh, you're right. And she, she calls me now and she says, I'm still alive. So I'm glad, to, I'm glad to hear from her. It says here, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did we use to deal with um, re- selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear? What step did we use for that? We used step four, didn't we? When these things crop up, the key word there is when, not if, when. When these things crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. What two steps do we use to ask God to remove our defects? Six and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately. When do we do that? Step five. And make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Step nine. Then we resolutely, resolutely means with purpose, turn our thoughts to someone we can help. What step do we do that? It's in the future. Twelve, right? Very good. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Now, in that little half paragraph, you've got four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve. I dare you to do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve every day, several times a day, many times a day, and keep eating Kit Kat bars. You simply cannot do it. And we have this resistance against telling someone what we're feeling, how we're doing, because we are taught, Mommy, I'm scared. Oh, don't be scared. 
Don't feel that way. Mommy, I'm angry. No, no, don't be angry. There's no reason to be. So we learn to stuff it. We learn to deal with it on our own. And guess what? You can't. You can't deal with these things on your own. If you could, you wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> You'd be home watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Whatever it is, reruns of wrestling or Superman or whatever's on on Sunday morning, you know. This is a vital step, and you do this several times a day. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. We will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. Thanks. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react as long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Now, if somebody says to you, I'm training for a marathon or I'm training for a competition, you would think they would have to go to the gym every day and work at it and work at it and work at it. That's why I love the phrase fit spiritual condition because we have to work at this every day. There's no days off. I don't get to yutz off here because I'm in San Diego and not do my steps. This morning I got up. Thank you, God. I'm in a great hotel. I've got some stuff going on that we'll talk about. I'm going to do one of my 10 steps now. I've got a 10 step that I'll do with you. But the bottom line is this is things we have to work at every day. Every single day. Many times every day. And I want to make sure you hear that second part. This is not something that we just do at night and just do in the morning. Because Kit Kat bars are impatient. They will not wait for you. Butterfinger bars don't wait. They want you now. So you've got to take care of these things now. Thank you. I was just going to ask you. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action, not thinking, and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. That is a prayer I pray a thousand times a day. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. When I meditate, I breathe in God's will, God's will, and I exhale my will, my selfishness, my dishonesty. God's will, and I breathe out anger. And I breathe in God's will, God's will, and I breathe out uh, fear, and I breathe out self-seeking. I breathe in God's will and breathe out my defects of character. And that is one of the key meditations that I use. That doesn't necessarily have to be what you do, but it's what I do. I breathe in God's will, selfishness. God's will, dishonesty. And that's how I meditate in the morning. Now, I've got a 10-step I'll do. I've got fear. And the fear that I have is... Um, I am uncertain when the movers are coming. I'm closing on my condo tomorrow, and I'm supposed to move Tuesday. And if I don't move Tuesday, I've got to pay another month's rent. If they can't fit me in, I'm rather screwed. 
and um, I don't know when they're coming. I don't want to be moved at 6 o'clock at night, but that's what might have to happen. I don't know. And um, so I'm a little concerned about the timing, but God's got my back. So I have a fear about when I'm going to move. What's the first character defect that jumps to the surface here? Selfishness, because I've got a script and they may not stick to it. What's the second thing? Anger. Ooh, anger. They're not going to give me what I want. What's the nature of the dishonesty? They haven't even laid out their schedule yet. How in the heck do I know I'm not going to be first or second or whatever it is? That's complete dishonesty. I'm living in something that I have no idea. The other nature of the dishonesty is whenever they move me isn't going to mean a hill of beans a month from now, a year from now, or five years from now. It's not going to amount to a hill of beans. One way or the other, I need to get out of that apartment by July 1st, and God knows that. He's aware of my lease. He knows when that lease ends. He got it. He understands it. He's not, God's not stupid. Okay, now, what's the fear? What's my part? Well, the fear is I'll be moving at night and I really don't want to move at night. Well, you know what? Maybe there's some frickin' reason why I need to move at night. Maybe somebody on 70th Street in Scottsdale, Arizona is going to be driving down Gold Dust Avenue drunk and they would have hit my car or hit the moving van had I moved in the morning and maybe he wanted me not to have that accident. How do I know? I don't know. So I'm going to ask God to remove the defects of character. I'm going to assume that he has done so. I'm going to discuss it with another person at once. I'm going to make amends if I've harmed anybody. In this case, no harm, no foul. And then I'm going to now resolutely turn our thoughts to someone I can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So let's now turn to the bottom of 85 where it says, much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him. You see how quick that goes, that whole process goes, that 10-step goes? Now, is there honestly, don't raise your hand now because I don't have time, but honestly, is there something there that's so out there, that's so esoteric, that's so complicated, that you can't do it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think this 10-step would amount to a hill of beans looking at your otherwise Oh, above average intelligence. I don't think it'll amount to a hill of beans. It's just the willingness to do it and the willingness to take action. Lachai. Okay, Ro? Okay. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, not suggestions, directions, and we have, be- we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. If, but we must go further, and that means more action. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. Now, when this was written, Bill Wilson was not exactly a giant of prayer or meditation. Thank God he wasn't. Because if he was, he would have probably written it in such a way that I wouldn't have understood it. But because he was not adept at these things, I can understand beautifully what he's writing. Now, why is the nighttime portion first? Because it is assumed that you've been doing 10 steps all day long. And that's why the night section is first. Let's take a look. Ro, where am I? Okay, thanks. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. 
it works if we have the proper attitude and work toward it. Don't sit there and pray for a pony and don't sit there and pray that she takes her clothes off. That's not <laughs> probably going to happen. Pray for things, you know, that have that proper attitude. I've prayed that girls have taken their clothes off in public places. It never works. <laughs> it would be easy to be vague on this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? What steps did we use to deal with resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear? Four and ten. Do we owe an apology? What steps do we use to make an apology? Nine, five, nine, not five, nine, and we do it again in ten. Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Five and ten. We were kind, were we kind and loving, I'm losing it here, I'm telling you. Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Now, when we read this line, what could we have done better? I'm going to remind you of something. A hammer to your head is not one of the tools of recovery. Take it easy on you. If you treated your friends the way you treated yourself, would you have any? Take it easy on you. And when I say take it easy, that doesn't mean go eat Kit Kat bars. It just means be reasonable. Ro? Oh, were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, step 12, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. This comes from the ancient practice of taking your daily guidance. This is an ancient practice. It comes from the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, way of life, and it is taking your daily guidance. Ann Smith would be in the living room reading from her Bible, and this was the height of the Depression, 1935, and... Bob and Bill would be running out the door to go work on some drunk at the town's hospital, and she would say, you boys, sit down and take your daily guidance and do your meditation. My guidance is important. I email to my sponsor every day. What are my plans for the day? What am I going to do today? Now, remember the scenario when Bill Wilson had to make that phone call and he went to the cafe to make a call? and he ended up drunk? What if he'd have said to his sponsor, I'm going to the cafe to make a telephone call? What would you think his sponsor might have said? Why don't you go to the transmission shop and make the call there? Why don't you go to the candy store? Why don't you go to the clothing store? Why don't you go to the funeral parlor and make your call there? So these things <laughs> that make perfect sense in my addled brain, when I show them the light of day and I show them to another person, I get really, really good feedback. I get really good feedback from him all the time. Okay? Thank you. Where is especially asking? I know where. Director thinking especially Okay, thank you. Especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. If I'm trying to steal a vicarious thrill or I'm trying to feel sorry for myself, which I'm really good at. If you want help at feeling sorry for yourself, see me after this. I'll show you how to do that. 
if I'm trying to get something rather than give something, I'm going to be very disappointed, very disappointed. I must seek to give, and God will give me what he wants me to have. Our thought life, oh wait, sorry. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. There's the understatement of the year. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. We relax and take it easy. Now, in meditation, I'm listening to God. In prayer, I'm, t- I'm talking to God. But in meditation, I'm listening to God. If what I'm doing is meeting tremendous universal resistance, it is probably not God's will. I'm facing that in my business life now. My business is plunging. I'm making 20% of what I was making just 10 years ago. I want to do something different, and I keep getting resistance, and I'm asking God every day, give me some direction. What is it you do? All right, I'm clear that you don't want me to do this. I'm, I'm clear on that. It's, it's just too hard. What do you want me to do? What is it that you want me to do? Drop the John Hancock building on me, but let me know what your will is for me. And eventually, I will get there. Because if I listen long enough, he will commu- he's already communicated with me. I was just probably too pig-headed to, to hear it. We don't struggle. If you're struggling against a thought or an idea, it's your will, not God's. God's will is easy. Easy. Except for one little hiccup there in the mortgage situation with this condo, everything went easy. Easy. My monthly nut went down $65 a month. And I own rather than rent, and I have twice the space. So that, that's God's will, right? Okay. I had one little hiccup. with. I was in mortgage purgatory there for a while. I don't know what was going on there. Okay. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. Excuse me. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. See, we are working steps all day long. There's no time in my day when I'm not working steps. I'm working at my job, I'm working at my business, I'm swimming every day or I'm doing what I'm doing, but I am working steps. I am constantly conscious of what it is that has given me the power to live another day. I have a constant companionship and a constant consciousness of that God that fills my heart. I used to find the time to obsess about Reese's peanut butter cups. I used to find the time to obsess about pizza, I found more than enough time to eat and throw the wrappers away out the window of my car of Doritos. I must find that time. I want to find the time. I need to find the time. I desperately have to find the time to be in conscious contact with my Creator. I have a fatal illness. I have an illness that's mind over matter. It doesn't mind killing me and I don't matter. What the hell else do I have to do? He has given me my life back. 
who or what is more important than my relationship with my God? Whether you call him whatever it is, name you call him, it doesn't matter. He is there, he's with me, and he fills me. And as long as he fills me, then Kit Kat bars won't fill me. And if he doesn't fill me, then Kit Kat bars will fill me. How do I know that? <laughs> I've lived that life. So I can be full of Kit Kat bars, pissing in my pants, pooping in my pants, farting, not showering, not brushing my teeth. I can do that. I know how to do it. I do that very well. If you want to learn how to live like that, call me when I get home. I'll show you. I'll tell you. Or I can be filled with that spirit of God and that spirit of service. Come to the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. Come to some of our meetings. We have a blast. But when that 5.30 bell hits, it's time to recover. Come and see us in Scottsdale. Not now. Don't come now. You won't like it. All right, Ro? That we be given whatever we need. That we be given whatever we need. We may as for ourselves. We usually conclude the meditation. We be showed all through the day what our next step is to be. And we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. It's okay to ask as long as somebody else is going to be helped. And that doesn't mean, please let me win the lottery and I promise I'll give $10 to the church. No, that's not what he's talking about there. That's not what he's talking about. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. Does this paragraph kind of sound familiar? Let's go back if we can. And this is something I like to do when I have the time and I'm going to make the time. Let's, if we can, go back all the way to page 13. Thank you, Len. Let's go back to page 13 in Bill's story. It says here, on page 13 in Bill's story, I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only I might expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. When the big book wants to tell you something, it doesn't tell it to you once. It tells it to you many different ways. And it tells it to you in many different chapters of the book. So it's that same idea, that selflessness, that altruism, getting out of yourself, doing what you need to be of service to your fellow human being. Page 87, page 87 if, cir- if circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated. I have a friend of mine in Scottsdale. His name is Josh, and he, uh, he, he's a good guy. You come to our meetings, you'll meet him. He'll say, God is in the pause. And if you, he's your sponsor, you'll come to the meetings, and we know when he's sponsoring somebody because they'll always say, 
God is in the pause. And we'll say, say hi to Josh. <laughs> God is in the pause. And how many times do I wish I could have paused, but I acted. And when I act out of tempestuous rage or jealousy or fear or anger or whatever it is, I never like the results. But when I pause, your will be done. When I just take that minute to breathe, I know somebody in New York that calls me all the time and I have to say, breathe, 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 breathe. Okay. Pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. Here's the most important paragraph in the book. It works. It really does. It works. It really does. We alcoholics are undisciplined, so let God, we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined. But this is not all. There is action and more action. Faith without works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. Now, we do not have the time to go through chapter 7, but we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about step 12. And step 12 is a definite three-part step. And the very first part of step 12 is a, uh, is a part that people overlook. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. In the original first edition, it said spiritual experience. And it was changed along with the addition of Appendix 2 to say spiritual awakening. Because people were getting the book, first edition, and they were writing into the AA office and saying, what are we doing wrong? We're not having this white light experience that you describe in your story. What are we doing wrong? And Bill was writing from his own perspective of a sudden and profound experience. And there are people who have... Steve, it's freezing in here. Yeah, thank you. Um, they were right, he, he was writing from his own experience and they changed it to spiritual awakening. What is a spiritual awakening? It's the result of the steps. It's as the result of the steps. And what you see sometimes in people's zeal to be helpful is they've worked a step and they've been abstinent for about nine minutes and now they want to go out and save the world. Take it easy. Work your program. Work your program. Do what it is you need to do to have your spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And it's very, very important that you understand that there are people out there that may be watching you, whatever, they're not watching you, but you work your steps. And then it says here, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters. Now, I want to talk to you about carrying the message. Have a message to carry. Live it and do it. When my daughter was 18 months old, 19 months old, this is August of 95. She was born in December of 94. This is August of 95? No, she wasn't talking yet. This is August of 96, right? 18 months, something like that, 19 months. Okay, 
It was a Sunday morning, just like it is now. We were living in Eugene, Oregon. And my then wife and my little daughter were back to back. I can see them now, right where Jenny is sitting. And they were putting away massive amounts of groceries. My wife was. And my little daughter came into the kitchen, and I was in complete relapse. She's going to be 20, and I have 16 and a half years. She'll be 21 in December, and on December 29th, I'll, if I'm lucky enough, I'll have 17 years. You can do the math. So I was in complete and utter relapse at this time. My little angel daughter, when they have the hands and the arms, you just want to just bite them. You can't, because they're just at the end of that little pudgy stage. You know, I couldn't keep my teeth off this kid when she was first born. And uh, we used to have to peel her off me so I could leave the house. And now, then she went and she wouldn't talk to me for a couple of, for years. But anyway, that's for another time. She reached up her little hand as the rustling of bags was going on Sunday morning, and I'm watching this in front of me. She picked up her little hand. She opened up the refrigerator. We had one door here, one door here. They both opened up, you know. She picked up her little hand, and she turned around. She says, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. (laughs) If looks could kill, I would have been vaporized on the spot. I wonder where she got that from. Shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. She didn't even know what that meant. Now, we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank God. We moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. And we had just moved. And there was an ABC primetime comedy about a guy who ran around with his brother making amends for things he had done to other people after he won the lottery. And she came into the family room. And I was making money at that time. My TV was about as big as a garage door. And um, she comes into the family room, and she looks at the TV. She's now about seven or eight, eight, nine, something, eight at the time. We moved when she was in second grade, but this was after we moved. She looks at the TV, and I'm in recovery now. And I'm going to meetings, and I'm back on fire. I'm reignited. And she comes in there. I'm going, I'm going how much time do I have? Uh, we won't end in three, but we'll end pretty close. Okay, now, okay. So what we have here is uh, she, she's there, and she looks at the TV. She looks at me, and she says, that guy's just doing his eighth and ninth step, right, Dad? That's how far she had come. That's how far she had come. So when we talk about the message, you talk about the only message we have, and that's the message of the big book. And you extend yourself to newcomers and you extend yourself to people because they will not remember much about what you said to them. They will remember how you made them feel. You pass this by doing it. You have the magic. You have the book. There's three things you can do for the people in this world that are still suffering. Recover, recover, and recover. There are the three things you can do, and you can light them up. You have that power. You speak and you understand the language of the heart. Transmit that language of the heart in what you do. To a person out there, to, to, to a person out there, you can be very vital. To the world, you're a person. 
to that person, you can be the world. You can light them up. You can give them information, but you can give them identification that they couldn't get from the psychologist and they couldn't get from the psychiatrist or Weight Watchers or Nutrisystems or the, or the bar bariatric surgeon. They couldn't get those things there. You can light them up. It says in, my, in, in the Old Testament, it says, you save one world, one life, and you save the world. You can light them up. You can save a life with what you're doing here. And there's not many ways of life where you can do that. You have an unbroken chain, an unbroken chain of a flame that was struck in Akron, Ohio. On June the 10th, 1935, a, 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 a chain, a flame was struck. When Bill went to meet Dr. Bob in the Cyberlane Gatehouse, remember that the steps, uh, I forgot the end part of the step here to say that, and to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. What are the principles, the steps? Well, in Akron, Ohio, a flame was struck, and then it spread to Bill Dotson, and then it spread to the original 100. And one day it spread to a guy by the name of Jim Willis, Jim W., who was an alcoholic who had a gambling problem. And Jim W. started a 12-step program called Gamblers Anonymous. And Gamblers Anonymous was founded in Oxnard, California. And in Los Angeles, California in 1958, after hearing a television program on the Paul Coates show, Roseanne S., whose husband Marvin had a friend with a gambling problem, they took him to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. And they sat there, and Jim Willis was there, and Roseanne was there, and she identified with what these gamblers were saying about the lies they told and the things that they experienced. And she came up to Jim W. and said, do you think a program like yours would help people like me? And he said to her, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. And independently of this, in a place called Luling, Texas, there was a guy by the name of A.G. Ainsworth. And when I think of him, he's gone now. And when I'm here at the Region 2 convention or an OA birthday in January, I see his spirit. I see him wandering the halls and doing the things he did. And I had conversations with him. But A.G. Ainsworth went to a silent AA retreat with his friend Robert. And they were coming back and they were stopping at a bakery and A.G. was in so much pain but he wanted to make it seem like he was joking. He said to Robert, do you think a program like AA would help somebody like me? And Robert heard the pain in his voice and turned to him and said, you know A.G., I don't see why not. And one day A.G. found Roseanne and it was like Stanley finding Livingston. And this program came to you and you must pass it on, one to the other. You owe to these people, you owe to the original 100, and to A.G. and Roseanne and all the rest of the people you owe. I'll close by saying this. I'm very honored to have been here with you this weekend. Let's go to page 164, and we'll do the closing benediction, and then we'll let them have, their, have the room. 164. Our book, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. 
Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Steps 1, 2, and 3. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. 4, 5, 6, 7. Clear away, <clears throat> excuse me, clear away the wreckage of your past. 8 and 9. Give freely of what you find and join us. 10, 11, and 12. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for having me in San Diego. We, we need you to either stay standing for a bit because we're going to be putting flyers on the seats. So, uh, Meg, can you your people come and get the flyers on the seats, please?